The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob O'Connell, coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, TV. And if you'd like to find out about the programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. And for the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV www.simultv.com and in the search engine on that main page just type in Exxon. My guest this hour is Dr. Paul H. Smith, Major, U.S. Army, retired. And uh, let me see here. Paul H. Smith is a retired Army intelligence officer, Desert Storm veteran, and seven-year alumnus of the Department of Defense's Stargate Remote Viewing Psychic Spy Program. President and Chief Instructor for Remote Viewing International Services, Inc. He is also a founding director and two-time past president of the nonprofit International Remote Viewing Association. His book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, uh, let me see, that came out in 2005, was a Reader's Digest book bonus feature and editor's choice selection. Joining me now is Paul H. Smith. And Paul, welcome back to the Exxon. Thank you. It's been a long time. It has been. What have you been up to since you and I last talked? Well, I've been, of course, doing a, a lot of remote viewing training. I've mm-hmm. written a, another book. Um, I've got a bunch of blogs I, uh, I sort of manage. <laughs> I've been uh, running conferences and traveling and talking about remote viewing and consciousness uh, pretty much all over the world. How would you describe remote viewing to a person who's never heard that phrase before? Well, the shortest way to say it is it's a form of controlled or disciplined clairvoyance. But probably better to explain it in a little more extended term, which is um, remote viewing is a skill or ability that, that is based in our consciousness Mm -hmm. that allows us to extend our perceptions and our consciousness to distant locations, into shielded areas, or even backwards and forwards in time to some extent. How does uh, remote viewing differ from other so-called psychic phenomenon? Um, Well, 
importantly, it, it grew up in a laboratory. So it, it actually is a science-based project um, or program, if you will. And mm -hmm. it was, of course, sponsored by the military uh, for 23 years altogether. Um, it's a, a very disciplined skill. It's very informed by scientific discoveries between over the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s. Um, and it uh, requires uh, probably a bit more rigor than your typical psychic sort of behavior. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not related to other things like, I don't know, scrying or dowsing right. or, or just garden variety being psychic, mm -hmm. uh, because it is. Uh, I, I, my, my opinion is, and I think there's some evidence to support it, is that uh, we have this underlying, for lack of a better word, underlying psychic faculty that everybody is born with. And then there are different modes of expressing it. Um, and remote viewing is just one that was actually developed and structured from the ground up as a, a way of uh, scientifically approaching the, that particular ability. Can anyone learn how to be a remote viewer? So that, that's also an interesting question. Of course, you, you hear a lot of people say, uh, well, you know, you got to be gifted to be psychic. If you mm -hmm. don't have the gift, you're, you're psychic as a rock. Yeah, you know, if you go to the Harry Potter books, uh, you'd be a muggle, right? Um, and, and there's that very strong belief. Uh, my own personal opinion is a lot of people who say that are a bit jealous of their abilities and they don't want anybody else trying to, trying to also compete with them. And so they try and make people think that if you don't have the gift, you're not going to be psychic. The fact of the matter is, the evidence that they came up with, well, let me give you a little background. So, so um, a, a man named Ingo Swan mm -hmm. uh, was the one that first came up with the protocol of, of what we now call remote viewing. Uh, he was working for some, uh, working with some parapsychologists in New York City with uh, the American Society of Psychical Research and with Gertrude Schmeidler at the City College of New York, and they were doing parapsychology experiments, and he said, you know, you guys are kind of missing the boat. There's a way of doing this that would, would be better. And he suggested that approach, and they tried it, and it was quite successful. And that's what then became remote viewing, ultimately. Um, so now, this we move further, a little bit further ahead, to a, a, a uh, think tank in Menlo Park, California, at the time known as the uh, Stanford Research Institute, because it was part of Stanford University. And they did millions of dollars of research for the government into signal communications, into intelligence collection, into nuclear uh, nuclear science, including weapons technology. They did all this kind of stuff. Right. And and put and the guy named Hal Putoff, who's a PhD physicist, found out about uh, Ingo Swan, decided to do an experiment, and was successful. And that's where the program started. Uh, the CIA hired them to actually develop this whole process. And there's more to the story, but I don't want to monopolize the entire program talking about that part of it. So how would the military use remote viewing? Well, as you can imagine, there, the, the military is always confronted with problems where they don't know the answers. Uh, usually it has to do with the, the enemy or at least someone who could be a potential threat. Mm -hmm. and, and so remote viewing gave them the opportunity to uh, essentially insert a mole, if you will, a psychic mole, into foreign facilities, into foreign locations, uh, to detect and determine 
what might be going on at these places into which the military couldn't get any other access. And so they use it essentially to explore denied areas. Um, so, so the big things at first were like uh, weapons factories, uh, R&D facilities, that kind of thing. But we eventually got into much broader uh, situations. For example, hostage situations in the Middle East. Um, the problem, of course, was that the Hezbollah had, had captured a bunch of Westerners and were, were holding them all over Lebanon, and we couldn't find them. So they tasked the remote viewers to try and help, and, and we did have some success at it, but it was a really tough problem to, to crack, obviously. So what does, uh, you know, we've heard stories, we've seen movies where where remote viewers are sitting in a, in a little cubicle somewhere and they're given a target by... Uh, I guess we can call them a handler. Yeah. <laughs> where, where does this information come from, and how does the the agent or the remote viewer kind of gather the intelligence that is necessary in his own mind to actually find the target? So, so I think your first question is, how do they pick a target for the remote viewer to remote view? Yes. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we rarely ever came up with our own targets uh, in the remote viewing unit. Um, other agencies would have a problem, and there would be selective people in each of these agencies who knew about the existence of the program. It was, very, it was a very black program for various reasons, and so only certain people could be read onto it. But each agency had one or two people who might know about it, and so that person would be on the alert to if there might be a problem that seemed insurmountable to the, the resources that that particular agency had, then they would actually nominate this, this task down to the remote viewing unit, and then uh, they would, the remote viewers would be then assigned to try and, and get answers to the questions. Um, so, and, and of course, that's kind of how any intelligence system works, that the system itself just doesn't task itself. People come up with problems from other agencies. And the interesting thing here was that I've, I've done the tabulation on it. Roughly 36 different uh, intelligence organizations uh, levied uh, requirements on the remote viewing unit uh, from everything from the CIA to the, the FBI to the Secret Service on down to the Threat Analysis, uh, Threat Analysis Center for the Army. So there's a wide variety of people who were, if, if you, you know, if you, to use a, a prosaic kind of a term, they were our customers, right. if you will. <laughs> right. You and I have to take our first break. Paul, please stand by. Index on Nation, uh, Paul Smith is our special guest. He's got a new book out called The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, The Secret Military Remote Perception Skill Anyone Can Learn. His website is rview rviewer.com that's r-v-i-e-w-e-r.com and paul and i will be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the x-zone from our broadcast center and studios in niagara ontario canada don't go away
Exo Nation, Paul Smith is our special guest. His website is rviewer.com. He has got a new book out entitled The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, the Secret Military Remote Perception Skill that Anyone Can Learn. Uh, Paul, so, so you get one of these agencies to give you, I, I get what imagine a scenario, the information is then given to the remote viewer. But what information does the remote viewer actually get in order to help him do the remote viewing? Yeah, and, and that, that, that is a mind-blowing kind of a thing, I find. Um, so the viewer, you can't, you can't tell them what the target is. Because if they know what the target is, then, well, in, in the old days, uh, the skeptics would say, well, they're just cheating if they know what the target is. They, they can just tell you what they already know about it, right? In fact, it makes it harder to do if the viewer knows what the target is. Because what happens is everything that they know or they can mm -hmm. guess about that target is in right there in their head and it's making this you know it's essentially noise and what what the uh tasker may want to know is stuff that isn't known about the target but the viewer's got all this clutter in there about what he or she already thinks about the target so the viewer has to be blind to the target and so what happens is the tasker gives the uh, viewer the, a number that has been assigned to represent the actual assignment. So for example, if it's, if the target is like, um, oh, remote view, uh, a meeting that's taking place at the Kremlin, let's say, okay, uh, remote view this meeting, that's the assignment. And, but what the viewer gets is just a number. So let's say, uh, oh, arbitrarily 8675309, okay. Right. Uh, so they give the, the viewer that number eight six seven five three zero nine, and that has been linked up to that assignment. So the tasker may have written down eight six seven five three zero nine equals describe the meeting taking place now in the Kremlin, right? And so then the viewer just gets the number, but doesn't get the assignment. They don't tell the viewer what what the number is hooked to. What happens? This is my speculation because we actually don't have a bottom line on this. What I think happens is the viewer subconscious takes that number and says, what the heck is this? And then goes out exploring the universe to find out what that number is linked to, discovers that it's linked to this meeting at the, at the Kremlin, and then the subconscious guides the viewer's consciousness to that meeting, and then the viewer reports the perceptions and impressions that, that, that uh, come out of there. How do we know the information that the viewer is actually getting is the correct information? Yeah, that's always the challenge. Um, there's a couple ways to okay. help us be more sure that the information is, information is correct. The first thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing is we work the viewers on many, many, many targets that we actually know the answer to. And we call these practice or utility assessment targets. The viewer, you know, and, and so we're able to calibrate. Okay, the viewer had this target and they they provided this information that was correct and this information that wasn't correct. And, and no remote viewing is perfect. There's you, almost always noise in it, uh, with very rare exceptions, always some noise. But anyway, so the viewer, uh, in this target, they did this well, and this target did this well, and this target they did this well, and you give them a target similar to the one you, they may do in the future. And then when that kind of target comes along, you give them that target, you can assess how well they've done on past targets that are similar and say, uh, I, this the viewer is usually this accurate on this kind of this kind of target, so we think that the this information is probably correct. So that's one way, and that's the remote viewing approach. But then there's the standard, 
methodology that they use in the intelligence world in general, which is, of course, uh, what we call all-source intelligence, where you get a piece of information, um, but it doesn't exist in a vacuum. So they've already, the, the other intelligence uh, sources have collected other information about the target, and you're working this viewer on that unknown. But the viewer is also going to present information that is already known about that target. And so you can tell by how accurate mm -hmm. they are on that, roughly how accurate they're going to be on the unknown information as well. So we come pretty close, generally speaking. The only time when you don't know is when you run a viewer on something that there's nothing known about that target, uh, which people tend to want to do today, for example, using remote facility. They still can't tell what happened in the past. They can't image what happened in the past. They can't uh, image into the future. Um, they can't do, uh, they can't, they can't, there are places where they can't get, mm -hmm. uh, for example. So there's lots of, um, lots of intelligence questions that could still be answered by remote viewing um, that, that even our modern surveillance technology can't, can't manage. So why did the government drop the RV program? Well, one thing, of course, the Cold War ended, and mm -hmm. they were looking for the peace dividend, right? <clears throat> but another problem was actually institutional. So um, at a certain point, uh, the agency that owned the remote viewing program at the time, the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, they were anxious to get rid of it because the director of the agency really didn't believe in remote viewing. He really he did not like it. He felt like it was kind of a wild card kind of a thing. And he tried to get rid of it back when he was given control of it back it, while he was uh, with the Army. He was a general, a, uh, well, this time a lieutenant general. He was a, uh, a major general at the time when he tried to eliminate it from the Army. So he came in and got control of the DIA, wanted to get rid of it. Congress gave the program to the Central Intelligence Agency. And the Central Intelligence Agency didn't want it either because their director was also biased against remote viewing. Uh, so when it was when they tried to introduce it into the the CIA, the CIA came up with a report that alleged to show that remote viewing didn't work, and I'll tell you in a minute why that was a lie. <laughs> so they came up with this report that justified them getting rid of it, and they promptly did. They shut the program down, and ever since then, no uh, decision maker has been willing to allow something woo woo like that back into the government. Now, it doesn't mean that they haven't occasionally used it because they, uh, particularly during the global war on terror and all that, they they would sometimes ask uh, remote viewers to uh, help with projects and stuff, but these would be remote viewers who were working in the private sector. Um, I and, some, and my team actually were asked to try and find a missing soldier in Iraq back wow. in, I wanna say it was 2007. Uh, by an army major command, so that was an official tasking. Uh, but we were not military. We, you know, I was retired, and some of the others were just civilians. So you're just basically a another um, contractor. In a way, that's yeah. how it worked. Although we did it pro bono, you know, because we wanted to help. So. Sure. But yeah, then, then at times they did contract. I mean, uh, some mid-level uh, agent from the FBI, maybe, or or, or some or you know, CIA, whatever, might have some intel contingency funds they could use, and they might hire a remote viewer to help them with, with uh, some project or other. Are men better remote viewers than women, or are women better remote viewers than men? You know, interestingly, there's this uh, belief that somehow women are more psychic or more sensitive mm -hmm. 
than than men. Intuitive, and yeah. at least in the remote viewing world, that doesn't turn out to be true. It doesn't seem that gender makes a difference. There are crackerjack remote viewers who are female, and there were absolutely blow the doors off of it remote viewers who are male. Um, it seems more to be tied to to personality than to uh, gender. Um, certain personalities seem to do better with it. Other personalities seem to struggle with it more. Um, and uh, and that seems to be more the important variable than what, what sex you are. In your opinion, why would somebody want to learn how to do remote viewing? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, that's also interesting. Some people they really want to be useful and helpful. And, and this seems like an avenue where they can do that. So they'll, um, maybe they want to find missing kids. Maybe they want to help solve crimes. Uh, other people may want to, Oh, maybe they want to use it for investing. You want to try and make money uh, with it. And, uh, and, and there are ways to do that. And so they'll learn it for that purpose. Um, I find actually that the vast majority of people who do it, you know, they usually have some maybe practical use of mind, right. but their real motivation is uh, it's a self-actualization tool. It's a way of, um, it's essentially a way of showing that they are more than their physical bodies, that they that there is more to their their nature than just what uh, mainstream science says it is, that, that they are more than meat machines, if you will, right? Uh, because it's really true that if you can focus your consciousness on a distant point in the world and bring back information and experiences that you had no way of getting from your normal five senses, that's very empowering. And it does tell you that your mind can actually transcend the physical space in which it occupies. It can go far outside of the, the boundaries of your skull to, to go out and experience. Explanation, there is a direct link uh, to uh, the Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. It's at uh, www.guideremoteviewing.com. Paul's main website is rviewer.com. Um, so when it comes to remote viewing, it seems that just to put it on the back burner or, or to totally ignore it, seems like it was a big mistake the government and the intelligence agencies made. Why did they do it? I mean, besides the fact that two directors really didn't want it, they thought it was woo-woo and, and, and all the other negative connotations that they could come up with. But if it worked, why get rid of it? <clears throat> yeah, that, that's a question a lot of people ask. And the fact is that it, uh, it's a very controversial thing. Uh, it raised a lot of hackles. It, it, there were a lot of of you know real strong supporters in the government mm -hmm. and there were a lot of uh detractors as well i mean the history of the remote viewing program uh, it, it literally it started in 1972 with the cia and three years after that got started the cia got rid of it because well what happened is of course the cia got in a lot of trouble <laughs> they had been 
caught, you know, dosing people with you know, your government scientists with LSD. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, My mother was part of the um, MK Ultra in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. So, so then you know somewhat about that. Oh, yeah. They'd, they'd gotten involved in a lot of uh, nastiness, and mm -hmm. Congress came down hard on them. They, uh, Senator Frank Church, who led one of the investigations, you know, he called him the rogue elephant in the intelligence community, right? So they brought in a new director to clean house, and this director says, Okay, um, anything you're doing that's illegal or immoral or is is weird, get rid of it. And of course, remote viewing is not immoral; it's not illegal, but it certainly is weird. <laughs> and well, so the CIA jettisoned it. Unfortunately, the Air Force picked it up for a while, uh, but then the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force got mad because remote viewers actually torpedoed his favorite project. Uh, he was a proponent of what the MX missile, which ultimately became the Peacekeeper uh, missile, right? He was a, uh, a proponent of that. And the big thing they wanted to do is this multi-shelter uh, shell game basing plan. And it turned out remote viewers were able to locate where every missile was. Oh, and, and so Carter canceled the program. That was literally one of the reasons why Jimmy Carter canceled the MX basing plan is because remote viewers were able to demonstrate that they could locate where the missiles were in the shelters. But but if the and, remote viewers could locate the missiles that the U.S. had, didn't it dawn on these people that they could do the same thing to any other country that posed a threat to the United States? Well, there were people who that dawned on, but it didn't dawn on the chief of staff of the Air Force at the time. Um, he was really mad, and he essentially uh, kicked it out of the out of the Air Force. Fortunately, at that point, the Army had started up its own program, mm -hmm. and so the Army took it over. Uh, but then 1985, along comes this general. He didn't like it. He kicked it out of the army and the DIA picks it up. And then he comes along, and kicks it out of DIA again. And then the, yeah. it was just a history of people trying to shut this thing down, fighting with the people who wanted to support it. And for 23 years, the supporters managed to keep it going. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they retired or died. And that left the skeptics holding the bag and, and that allowed them to get rid of it. It was just. It was just a patent place uh, in the military of people who are true believers and people who are absolute skeptic, skeptic. So, you know, that's that's what happened. It almost didn't matter if it was successful. All that mattered was whether whether the people in charge liked it or not. OK, so let me understand this and let me try to get this message across to the members of the Exo Nation. Here you have a project, number one, that works. Number two, the expense to the taxpayer, I would imagine for the remote viewer compared to the other intelligence gathering methods was fractional. Yes. And let me give you a comparison. Okay. The, for the 23 years the program ran, mm -hmm. it cost that entire 23 years, the total cost of that was less than the price of one, less than half the price of one F-35 fighter today. Wow. Makes no sense. But what do I know? I'm not in politics. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it wasn't expensive enough. <laughs> you know what? That could be. Because if, you know, if it's if it's too good to be, if it, my wife says if something is too cheap, there's something wrong with it. Yes. <laughs> I say if it's too cheap, it's a good deal. Mm. Uh, you, you teach remote viewing, but you also teach dowsing. Yeah. Is there a connection between the two, or is it just that you wanted to learn how to do dowsing? Well, actually, there is a connection. Um, 
so uh, I talked about the the problem with trying to find hostages in the Middle East. And, yes. and we were often tasked to try and find things. So anytime, and, and this doesn't pertain just the military angle. This also pertains to to psychics today. Any, anytime you tell somebody you're a psychic, they want you to do one of two things, or maybe both. One is to um, predict the future, right? Right. And the other is to uh, probably find something missing. Uh, find find something that's missing. Find someone or something that's missing. So you, that's what they they want the psychic to do. And the irony is that those are two hardest things for a psychic to do. Uh, it doesn't matter remote viewer or not. Any psychic that those are the hardest things for a psychic to do. And so remote viewing, the way remote viewing works, it is a um, descriptive methodology. What you, you perceive a location, you describe the location. Uh, you can't get actual addresses or things like that. Those are very left brain constructs and remote viewing is a very right brain experience, experiential thing. So you can describe a place and when you're trying to find something, the, the idea is that if you can describe the location well enough, someone who is familiar with the terrain may be able to then know what you're talking about, right? But there's so many times when you don't know. Uh, it, it turns out, in many cases, it turned out to be very accurate, but nobody recognized it at the time. Um, so what's the solution to that? Well, there's this thing called dowsing, which I think probably most of your listeners are sure. familiar with. The, the stereotype is the old prospector in the desert with a forked stick trying to find water, right? Yep. But we used it in uh, much more refined ways uh, at Fort Meade. So we introduced dowsing, uh, particularly map dowsing, as a way to try and locate like the missing H-bombs or missing or, or kidnapped uh, hostages or whatever. And, uh, and, and it actually worked. Um, we did indeed, particularly during the, the, our involvement in the war on drugs, uh, they, uh, they used to try and find contraband and locate uh, hidden sh spaces in uh, ships where they might be smuggling drugs and stuff. And, and we used dowsing in those settings. And we actually were successful on a number of occasions in locating contraband, locating, you know, those kind of hidden compartments and things. So, um, but they're, you know, actually dowsing remote viewing kind of related. Uh, so uh, what I say is they're kind of inverses of each other. Uh, so in remote viewing, you know what it is. I'm sorry, you don't, you, you don't know what it is, but you know where it is. I'm mm -hmm. speaking very simplistically here. You know where it is, but you don't know what it is, right? And in dowsing, you know what it is, but you don't know where it is, right? So what you can do with remote viewing is you remote view the target. The viewer comes up with a good description of the target. And then you ask the viewer to douse on a map where that particular target that you're trying to locate is. And then the viewer <clears throat> uses that description. He's got, you've got the, uh, he or she is, is uh, now got a psychic conduit to the location. Just doesn't, can't, just can't tell you where it is. Then they use dowsing to give them a kinesthetic connection to help them pinpoint where uh, where the actual thing is that the viewer has already described and perceived. Okay, so let me understand this. Uh, you, you get a remote viewer who uses dowsing rods on a map? Well, yeah, there, there's a little more to it than that, uh, obviously. So okay. um, you can use you can use L rods; those mm -hmm. are the L-shaped kind of dowsing right, rods. Right. Uh, you can use a pendulum, and and one approach, for example, you, you got to be able to to kind of uh, find on the map, but it's hard to 
you know, use a pendulum to touch a map where the location might be. So what you do is um, you may run a ruler across the map. Yeah. And when the ruler cuts the location of the thing, the pendulum will react. Um, or you may run your hand over the map and the pendulum will react when you touch the spot where uh, the target, the missing person or the missing age bomb or whatever might be. Um, and so you, you use these tools. Um, I oftentimes use deviceless dowsing, which is literally, I didn't even have a pendulum. I didn't have L rods. My body became the dowsing instrument. And I would hmm. run my hand slowly over the surface of the map. And when it encountered the, the location, I feel this unusual tingling or kind of energy kind of a right. feel in my body. And uh, that worked quite well in many cases, actually. But how did it work? Like you, you, you've got a map that is not connected to anything. It's a map probably made of paper. Yes. And you use your fingers to go over the map. Yeah. And you get a tingling feeling when you hit the target. Yeah. I've got to think so, this one over, so I've got to take my final break here. Please okay. stand by, Paul. Exonation, our guest this hour is Paul H. Smith. And he was uh, with the United States as a major. And, uh, Paul, thank you very much for your service, by the way, my friend. Oh, you're quite welcome. And uh, we'll both be back on the other side of this break. But before we go, Paul has a new book out. It's entitled The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing. And the website uh, to find out more about the book or to order it is guidetoremoteviewing.com. Uh, and Paul's website is rviewer.com. Dot com, And we'll both be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Explanation: two websites for you to remember. First one is rviewer.com, and the second one is guidetoremoteviewing.com. My guest this hour is Paul H. Smith, and he has a doctorate, and uh, he's a former major in the United States Army. He is now retired, and uh, first of all, Paul, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your experience, and once again, thank you very much for your service. No, oh, I'm happy to do that, and uh... And, and thanks to the service of all the Canadian soldiers that may be listening in. Yeah. You know what? I, I, had, I had somebody on this show the other night, and uh, he says, well, there should be full disclosure, no secrets out there. The government should just open their books. And, and I said, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, what do we have to hide? Well, I, I said, well, just... Listen to that question you asked. So we open our books and let those people who are not friendly towards the United States or Canada or any other nation that enjoys freedom 
and let them know all our military secrets. He said, well, what's wrong with that? I said, and, and I suppose we should hold hands, sing kumbaya as we all watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. And, and it doesn't dawn on some people that the work and the safety of the men and women who volunteer to put their lives on the line for us is entrusted by certain aspects of the government and intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. And it boggles my mind when these people come out and, oh, well, full disclosure, you know, like, let's, let's charge Area 51 and see what's really there. You bunch <laughs> of morons. Yeah. Well, my, my response to that is, okay, so you want just ever, anybody to know how to build a thermonuclear weapon? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous. I, I, when I hear people talking like that, it, it just boils me to a point that I just can't keep the tongue bet- behind the teeth and the upper yeah. and lower jaw closed. Mind you, my wife will tell you that's impossible and in the best of times. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let's not get into the wife bit tonight. Nope, I don't think we will. Uh, yeah, something that um, that I saw that I, I couldn't, um, where was it here? Something about charging for services. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that about? I, I can't find it right now. It's in one of the points here. Oh, here it is. People say Universe doesn't allow one to make money using ESP. Why are they wrong? Well, that's an interesting kind of a meme that that percolates through the psychic world, that somehow being psychic is this special thing that that you shouldn't uh, be able to make money uh, using. Now, oftentimes it means that you can't like win the lottery by being psychic or you can't uh, make money in the stock market by being psychic. Apparently you're allowed to make money by, by foretelling somebody's future or whatever, you know, but you can't make money in the stock market. Why not? Well, you can actually, (laughs) it's, I'm not quite sure why they think that. I think they think that there should be something altruistic or noble about being psychic and, that making money isn't noble or altruistic. But we don't say that to a school teacher. We don't say that the money a school teacher's making is somehow tarnished or dirty because That's it's right. money, you know. Yeah. Um, but the fact is that people are making money in the star- stock market using remote viewing. There's a, a technique, remote viewing technique called associative remote viewing that allows you to predict the outcome of a future event Within approximately seventy, you know, on average, seventy to eighty percent accuracy. Um, well, isn't isn't it now the the thinking based on quantum physics that the past, the present, and the future are all happening at the same time? Well, I, I'm not sure that's the consequence of quantum physics, but it's certainly a a uh, a hypothesis in you know in cosmology and in in physics in general, um, and. You know, of course, the court's still out on that. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, the evidence shows that that isn't true because it, remote viewing is interesting. Uh, you can remote view the past, and you are just about as accurate remote viewing the past as the present. So, and how I explain what that is, I say uh, a well uh, experienced and well trained remote viewer 
70% to 80% of the time will produce evidence that they actually did succeed in remote viewing the, the, the required or the requested target. Roughly half of that time, the data they provide is really good. So roughly 35% of the time you have really good accuracy uh, and 70% and of the time you have some accuracy. So of course in mainstream science, no, that's impossible, you can't do that, but we've demonstrated all the time, right? So, um, so that's present and past. If you try and remote view the future, your success rate plummets to maybe 5% if you're lucky. Um, in terms of open future remote viewing, you know, the future, a future terrorist event or anything like that. So the question is, well, if you can remote view the past that well and the present that well, why can't you remote view the future very well? And my belief is that's evidence the future doesn't yet exist, which, of course, destroys that, that hypothesis right. that you, you just mentioned, right? But if that's uh, the case, how do psychics then predict the future? They don't. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. Now, now let me qualify that. They do occasionally, mm -hmm. but you'll notice that most psychics make a whole lot of predictions, but only the ones that are successful get any attention. Yeah, and the ones that aren't successful get ignored. Right? Yeah, throwing and, off of uh, throwing off on the wall. Some of it's going to stick. Well, I think sometimes they're actually right because. So to describe what I think the future is, I, I think about it in terms of like it's a braided stream going into the future, right? And there's all of these possible futures extending out into the future, mm -hmm. most of which won't actually happen. But there is a thread that the future will take ultimately, depending on what particular decision nodes are tripped as it, as it goes into the future. And sometimes a psychic will pick up on the possible future that actually does come to exist. Right. So I think sometimes they are right, but they they get a lot wrong. <laughs> right. And the same is true of remote viewers. Remote viewers don't their success in predicting the future drops off dramatically when you get in. Yeah. When you get into the future. Now, one of the things is the closer in you are to the present when you're trying to predict a future event, the more likely you seem to be to be correct, which makes sense. Right. The farther away, the less likely you are to be correct. And this mode of remote viewing the future called associative remote viewing actually works about as well as present and past, but it's a very limited approach. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it only a certain set of kinds of futures can you predict using it. I'm, I'm still waiting for Atlantis to rise out of the Atlantic off the coast <laughs> of the U.S. as, a, as predicted by Edgar Casey. Yes. How do you deal with skepticism, Paul? Well, First off, you have to understand many skeptics are just as much true believers in what they believe as many psychics are, right? Or true. people who yeah. support being psychic. So they have uh, – it's their worldview. It's their paradigm that that being psychic can't be true. ESP can't be true. And so you have to start off recognizing that. And then you have to figure out how to approach them where it forces them uh, or at least leads them to start to doubt their certainty about this. And one way to do it, of course, is to cite the evidence. Right. A, lo a lot of skeptics will say, well, there's no evidence for ESP. Oh, that's totally false. There is a ton oh, sure of well-established, scientifically-derived evidence for ESP. 
The problem, of course, is we don't have a causal story as to how it occurs, which is what science needs. They want a causal story before they'll accept your evidence. Okay, well, you know, that's that's too bad, right? Until we come up with a causal story, they're probably not going to. But skeptics, if you present the evidence, they essentially have to adopt a kind of cognitive dissonance um, that, oh, well, it, ESP it can't be true. And yet this evidence is here, right. you know, and... If you can establish, if you can get that extreme enough, they'll eventually force them to maybe change their minds about some things, right? So presenting evidence is important. But the other thing is, don't attack. I mean, a lot of people want to fight back. They want to be confrontive with a right. skeptic. It just doesn't work. You know, you need to be reasonable and rational about it. Paul, the time has come when you and I must say so long. We've got about forty seconds. What would you like to What would you like to share with the world tonight? Well, um, the excitement of remote viewing—it's a very exciting thing. It's not a simple thing. Any any skill, any complex human skill, obviously takes work to master. Of course. But I challenge anybody who's listening to look into it and and see what they can do to uh, to explore and maybe ex experience it. Paul, thank you so much. And Exonation, if you'd like to get more information about our guest this hour, visit his website at rviewer.com. And for information about his new book, The Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, the website is guidetoremoteviewing.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as the Exxon continues. We're right here from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. And we're heard around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, Exxon Broadcast Network, and on Simul Radio and Simul TV. I'm Rob McConnell. I'll see you on the other side of this break. Mm -hmm.